Thanks for joining us in our study of the book of Joshua. This Old Testament book presents a theological history of God as the sovereign promise maker and promise keeper who brings to pass all his gracious purposes. It calls Christians to live in light of the gospel blessings secured for them by Jesus, the better Joshua. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. How many of you have ever been to the Virginia Beach, uh, the Adventure Park, right down the road on Dam Neck? Anyone here been to that? All right, or at least heard of it, or maybe something like that. Um, we went a couple of years ago, and then uh, my wife and I took a date one time and went there. It was really fun. We got rained out. It was even more fun because of that. Um, but if you've never been there, let me give you a little bit of an idea of what's going on. It's basically like a kid's playground for adults suspended in the middle of the air. It's like all these obstacle course things that you can go from one place to another place. Um, a lot is going on, physical exertion. If you like the outdoors, it's a great opportunity to get out and do something like that. Um, some very high obstacles, like, but it, some of the simplest ones are kind of like an adult playground, whereas the, some higher ones are more like, uh, like the old Mario games. You'd be going from one ledge to another ledge that seems to be suspended in air. Um, that's kind of what it's like. Um, the highest obstacles are upwards of 65 feet up in the trees. It's quite a feat. Um, and they tend to be very challenging, but don't worry. It's very safe. Uh, you wear a harness, and at all times, you're safely attached to some sort of structure. But that doesn't mean it's not scary. Okay, very fearful uh, for those that don't enjoy heights. You probably aren't going to enjoy this park. This is probably not one for you. And everyone starts uh, in this training session down at the bottom of the park where they teach you how to go from one obstacle to the next and how to hook into the system, how to use your, um, your zip line function, how to get off of these big platforms, all the different things. And they train you how to do it. And they show you one of the, the scariest parts is they're trying to teach you to be able to jump off a platform and use an auto belay, which will slowly lower you down to the, to the ground. They show you how it works and they teach you and they promise you that this thing will catch you. And they, and they show it to you, and it will catch you. Over and over again, this thing works. It's kind of like a, a metal box that has a, a big, big rope coming out of it that's going to catch you. Well, we, we, they, they train you, they get you ready to go on, and then you go out and have, have a blast. Over, over the course of the hour that I was there, I can remember several times watching as fear would just grip people. And you could see how it would be like they would like start down one route, like, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go back to number like this blue one over here. and just I'm just going to keep on doing that over and over again. And then you'd have some people who were like, they got their guts up to do it, and they got out there, and they started shaking, and the whole structure is shaking because they're shaking like a leaf. But they're going to do it, doggone it, which I like. I like that. That's good. We're going to go out there. But then probably the most memorable of those types of occasions are when it becomes like a stack-up at one obstacle, and you don't know why until you get to the front, and there's someone standing at the edge of a ledge, and they realize the only way is down. They have no way else to get away from this thing. And they, and they, they literally get petrified. They, they're paralyzed in fear because they know they can't go back at all. And they've got to do something about getting this, you know, jumping off of this 40-foot ledge. Uh, I'm telling you, this petrifies people. And one time I was there, there was a girl there. I didn't know her. Um, the poor girl, I didn't know her, but this happened to her. She got to the end of a run. And she realizes there's no way out. There's no, you can't go backwards. You can't like climb down a ladder. You've got to jump off of this ledge. Um, she looks down. She realizes that it's 40 feet off to pass this ledge. She backs up and puts her hands like this because she's 
freaking out. And then she goes forward again. And then she goes back again. And she can't handle it. And everyone's waiting. For, this went on for about 15 minutes. And we're just waiting and sitting there. You can see the people backing up, twiddling their thumbs 40 feet up in the air, just waiting, hanging out together. Um, but this poor girl kept overlooking at this thing, trying to figure out how she was going to do this. I remember eventually a friend of hers came along that was behind and she said, hey, remember, they showed us and they promised us that these, this auto belay will catch you. You're not just going to jump off this cliff and land, not in water, not in a tent, you know, nothing down there to catch you. This belay will catch you. They promised us. Remember that. She kind of pointed her back to that and reminded her she was the one trying to help her friend off a ledge, talk her off a ledge, except forward, of course. Um, eventually... It took a few more minutes, but the whole park could hear when she chose to bravely step off that ledge. The scream was piercing, but as soon as that belay caught her, it was no problem. She was done. She made it all the way down to the bottom, shaking, but she had done it. All because a friend had come along and reminded her of the promises that she had received even at the beginning of the course. It was still the same promise. It was still true. But now her friend had come along and said, remember, this thing will hold you. It's going to be okay. You can do this and you can jump. Um, it was funny because after you heard the scream, you heard everyone else at the park rejoice. You know, we heard like clapping and cheering, and all for the girl who had uh, stepped off a ledge. This poor girl, I know she's being used as a sermon illustration today, can teach us something. This whole situation, I think we should clue in a little bit. The friend that helped this girl along delivered a promise about the auto belay that would allow her to come down, right? They delivered the promise so that this girl would jump so that she'd be able to move forward, so she would take action. A promise in general is never given just for information's sake. It's not some sort of secret. The reason someone promises something to someone else is the one receiving the promise is supposed to do something about it. It's supposed to change the outcome that they're looking at. It's not giving, again, like just for more information, but helping someone to act in a certain way. A promise is given to someone so that they will take action. Today, what we're going to learn from Joshua 10 is this. We watch as the Lord gives his people promises so that, for the purpose, that they might trust him and that they might act accordingly. So the reason God gives this is not just to show them what's going to happen in the future or give them some kind of idea so they can fill out Bible Jeopardy questions and make sure they get it right. He is giving them this promise so that they might trust him, they might bolster in their faith, and that then they would act accordingly. In other words, God's promises are meant to encourage true obedience for us. In the opening verses here of chapter 10, we find that the word of the Gibeonite covenant that was with Israel has been published or has come to all the people and the surrounding nations. And it is not good news for them. In fact, they're afraid. They realize that Joshua and Israel had just cut a path across the midsection of Canaan and there was now a wedge between the north and the south. Look at verse 1 and through 6. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he greatly feared. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. 
for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. Now, Israel's track record has become published to all these different nations. They hear about the wild success that they've had with devoting these people to destruction. Not only that, they've just heard of this new covenant with Gibeonites and Israel. The buffer between where Israel is camped at Gilgal and Jerusalem has now been compromised. Where they thought they had insulation from them now has been compromised and they're part of Israel. And so the king of Jerusalem calls together four other kings to fight against Gibeon, to put his newfound brothers in covenant with Israel to the test, to see if Israel would actually stand up for them, or if they could win back that area to themselves and create that buffer against so that they'd have a bit of safety. But notice how Gibeon responds. You'd think that if this was, if you heard us last week, if they were really this group of wily tricksters, what would happen? They'd probably learn some up, dream up a way to scam the rest of these nations so they didn't have to fight them. And they'd somehow figure it out to, to get onto their own side and, and save their own necks. But instead, you see something very different and that they stay true to their new identity. Look at verse 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us. And help us, for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. These people did not create some sort of new scam. It wasn't a new trick of theirs. Instead, instead of fearing the five kings that are around them, which they probably should have, they actually fear Yahweh. And instead, they call out to their newfound brothers, these Israelites, and say, come, help us, save us. Notice what they call themselves, servants. Same type of language. They have adopted this as their new identity, as part of Israel. These people understand that they need the help of Israel. And of course, the covenant means something to Israel. Remember this from last week. They had been sworn an oath before the Lord, and they were going to keep it. It meant something to them. These people were now servants of Israel and servants for the altar of the Lord, if you remember that. Joshua and his army then respond. Look at verse 7. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all of the mighty men of valor. They, they made good on their oaths. They actually went. They were ready to defend, to save, and to help these new brothers, the Gibeonites. But notice, this wasn't part of their agenda. This wasn't the next thing on their list to do. What's happening here is actually a reaction. It wasn't something that they said, okay, the next thing we'll do after this city is Jerusalem. We'll jump to that one. No, actually, the word comes from Gibeon that they're under attack, and so now Joshua is responding to this. But the Lord works in mysterious ways. Look at verse 8. All up to this point, we've had something between the people, humans. Now verse 8. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. I want to give you a clue. Verse 8 is the central verse of this whole section. It is the most important verse for us to understand this story. It is the hinge that everything turns on. The story is going to change from a defense, like this defensive help from Joshua, now to an offensive conquering. What's happening in these words from God, these promises, what we might think is a regurgitated promise, because we know this from back in chapter 1, 
This is not just some sort of regurgitated promise. This is again applied at the right time saying, this is not about defense anymore, Israel. This is about conquest. Do not be afraid. I have given these people into your hand. They will not be able to stand in front of you. They make good on their oaths. Verse 8 is important again. Joshua was simply honoring the covenant as he's going along to Gibeon, coming to their defense, warding off foreign threats. But in the beginning stages here of a defensive maneuver, as he's going to defend these guys, the Lord speaks and inserts himself here to make sure they understand. There's no reason to fear, and more than that, I've given all of them into your hand. The Lord speaks to Joshua and helps him to see that even this threat is part of God's plan for them to move forward and conquer the peoples in the land. God's revelation to Joshua is not new information. Like we said, it all comes from chapter 1. Instead, he's calling it right from chapter 1, verse 5. He's reminding them that the Lord is with them and that they have no need to fear the future. They do not need to fear these five kings. I mean, think about it for a minute. Went to Jericho, one king, one kingdom. Went to Ai, one king, one kingdom right there. And now here we are, five kings have joined forces against Israel. God understands that there is going to be potential fear and anxiety in the people of Israel. His promises, though, are delivered so that they would trust him and move forward and do what they were supposed to do from the beginning. But he is reassuring them, this is my plan. I am giving them into your hand. I will be with you. They will not even be able to stand in front of you. Not only is there a command against fear, but the Lord reminds them that he is going to give the Canaanites in their hand and they're not going to be able to stand up. And so with the promises of God ring in their ears, Joshua jumps off the ledge. There he goes. He's ready to go. He's going to believe. Verse 9. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. And as they fled before Israel while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Joshua receives God's promises. What does he do? He takes a hike. Through the cool of the night, he goes from Gilgal all the way to Gibeon. This is no pleasure stroll or some sort of nice evening walk. It's 18 miles uphill. 18 miles, 3,500 feet of elevation. This is what they're doing. This is a mix both of military strategy so that they will capture into their people in the, in the nighttime or the early hours of the morning, but it's also faith. As Joshua receives this word, he acts. He moves forward in faith, trusting that this is what, exactly what God has for them. The night hike would surely give them this element of surprise as they come upon their enemies, but it's far more important that we see that he is ready to obey God. And the Lord has assured them that there will be victory. They're ready to take action. But I want, to look you at, I want you to look at this verse for a minute and see who the actual subject of the verbs all is. You can't see it in English. You see it in the first phrase. But I'll tell you this. The rest of them are still singular going through here. We're seeing one person is doing all this action. The Lord throws the enemy into a panic. The Lord struck them with a great blow at Gibeon. The Lord chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them. And then, if we weren't getting it well enough, he gives us this incredible thing where an explicit statement is made of who really killed more people. Was it the people or was it God? 
the Lord threw down large stones just to prove from heaven that he was the one that was actually doing the work. More people died from the hailstones than from the sword. Joshua is not the main character. The divine warrior Yahweh is. He promised victory, and here we are in live action. We are watching the victory unfold in front of us. We're watching Joshua and the soldiers obey, pursue, attack, while God actually does the fighting for them. His promises are true. This should not make us surprised. He can be trusted. Even at the point that Joshua is so convinced about this that he kind of asks for something crazy. Now I'm going to take a break for a second and I want you to look at the whole. I want you to look from 1 all the way to 27. We see that this is assured that something's going to happen here, but we see at 11 kind of like the story is all summed up, like this is what's going on. A lot of people got killed. It's in good shape. We're almost done the battle. But then we have two more big sections after this time. We're going to have more and more information. The reason this is happening is we've seen this happen back in chapter 3 and 4, if you remember this. The whole event where they moved through the Red Sea, we had these things where it messed up our chronology. We're like, what's happening after what? How's this going down? And what the author is doing is he would tell us a piece of story, and then he would zoom in and tell us a little part of it over here, and then zoom back out. Maybe give us another little piece. And so, as, again, as, again, as Western thinker, thinkers, we really hate that because we want chronological flow all the way through. But what our author is trying to do here is explain to us the importance of seeing this battle in light of the promises of God and what they're supposed to do, which is to encourage us to believe and to act. So we've seen Joshua before this happened again, but now we're going to see it again. So let's look at the first one, all right? Look at verse 12. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ijalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and not hurry to set for about a whole day. Joshua trusts the Lord completely. God has told Joshua all that Israel is going to have success and that they would be given, the enemies would be given into their hands. But there's kind of a practical problem for Joshua. When he comes to this task, what's going to happen now is these people, as he comes upon them, they are going to run away. And they're going to run away into the hill country. And it's not like a big open flat field. It is going to be extremely difficult and take a long time to conquer all these people. And so what we see here is him actually asking for something that seemingly sounds impossible. He asks for more time. He knows he needs more time to do what God has asked him to do. God promised him he would do. I can remember when I was in college, this is not an exact parallel. I remember I was in college, my mom called me, I would call her like once a week on a phone that was actually attached to the wall. I don't know if you remember those things. Um, I, I would call her and she would call me and she's like, I remember one time she said, what can I, what do you really need? What can I get for you? She was thinking maybe like, pumpkin bread or like, can I send you some, some kind of snack? And I literally racked my brain. And I was like, can you please send me some time? I just need more time. Because she's asking, what do you need? I'm like, I, I know you can't give it to me. But could you please could you just wrap up a few hours for me so I can just add it to my day and get the things done that I need to get done? That would be great. And of course, it was impossible for her to actually send me time. Uh, but I remember her saying, except for maybe that little spice. I know, but that's not what I'm talking about. We were, she couldn't do that for me, right? So she said this instead. She goes, 
I realize you need that. I can't give it to you. I will pray, though, that your work is effective, that you'll be productive, and that you'll be able to get the things done that you need to. I mean, ever, ever the spiritual encourager, my mom. And, and she did. And she prayed for me. I can remember, and I, I had success in this, completed my assignments on time, and God certainly did open up some doors where I was able to get things done. I can tell you today that as far as I know, the sun did not stop uh, over my college dorm room, uh, but he did make it possible for me to actually work through this. Joshua, though, needed time. He understood the task ahead of him was immense, and he knew that he could not get it done without the help of the Lord, and the Lord had promised, and so he comes back and he asks. He's so committed to Yahweh's word that he asks for a miracle to fulfill the promise that God had given to him. He says to him and asks God, will you give me more time? God responds by stretching out this day of conquest. And I know what all of you are thinking or wondering, how? I mean, because I'm thinking the exact same thing. I'm like, what happened here on this day where he seemingly stretches out time? I mean, what does the day look like? I mean, you know, let's talk about the refraction of light or is it like some sort of scientific method we don't know about? It's a day that's missing somewhere. Um, did, the, did the earth stop on its axis? Like, let's talk about that. It's amazing. I mean, let's talk about some theories. But notice the text says something that was amazing. And it doesn't talk about the day as the day is. Look at verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since. We're like, oh, great. We're going to hear what happened. When the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. You and I are so, I am, I, I'm so caught up in like the incredible opportunity that maybe the sun stopped or something like that. But our author tells us what was actually amazing that the Lord himself heeded the voice of a man. It's good for us to consider, don't get me wrong, it's good for us to consider the scientific things and how this happened, what actually happened on this day. And in fact, if you come in June, we're going to have our course seminar, and when we do that, I'll probably talk about this a little bit along with some other gleanings from Joshua for us to understand a little bit better. But for now, the text says that this amazing thing was that God himself heeded the voice of a man. Now, this is a unique phrase. The reason this is so important is because it's never used in this order. We always see it the opposite. This man heeded the voice of the Lord. But here we have it switched, where we see it differently. It's a unique phrase. Most literally, you're not going to like this, it would be translated, not a heretic, God obeyed the voice of a man. Now, does that mean that God had to do what he said? Absolutely not. Did God have all sovereignty in the situation? Absolutely. Did God have a plan? Absolutely. But what are we getting at here? In faith, Joshua comes and asks of the Lord that he would do what the Lord had promised him he would do. In his faith, he asks for something that's seemingly ridiculous, even miraculous. But it was for the purpose of accomplishing the promise that God had given. The way that Joshua comes up with this, he kind of says, Lord, can you give me time to take vengeance on these people before they make it back to their cities, before they can hide in the darkness of night? And God heeds the voice of Joshua and grants him his request because, look at the end of verse 14, because for the Lord fought for Israel. Again, we are not seeing something miraculous here in that God like was surprised. Oh, I guess I'm going to have to respond to what Joshua says. No, no, no. 
This is showing, however, the importance of us understanding faith and the length it would go to to ask God according to his promises. So much so, this is what Joshua does. It is born then out of the promise in verse 8. He is acting in faith. You know, the truth is, prayer is probably one of the most important faith-filled activities that a Christian can do. Do you know that an unbeliever looks on those that pray as though they're fools? Or maybe like the only like side benefit is maybe some sort of meditative state. That's good. But I'm not talking about meditation or like emptying your mind. I'm talking about you and I going before the Lord, talking to him as we would other people, as though he is real, as though he actually hears us and can actually do something about what we're talking to him about. Prayer is an act of faith. It's a believing action where you and I talk to God, even though we don't see him. We praise him for his wonders. We plead with him to do work on our behalf. And we come to him with our sorrows, knowing that he cares deeply for us. Our shepherd, the one who says, and who saw his, uh, his people and wept. A gentle, loving shepherd. He knows, and as we carry those griefs to him, we are truly comforted. Joshua acts in faith and asks God to act to fulfill his promises. And guess what? He does. No surprise there, really. That's the first detailed report. Let's go on. Verse 16. These kings, these five kings, fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that had remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. In the course of the fighting, somewhere along the line, we're not sure when this had happened. Remember, this is some sort of a going in to understand a bit of what's happening in this story. We're not sure when this happened, but an Israelite soldier makes a discovery. The five kings had fled and hid in this cave at Makedah. The news is reported to Joshua. What luck to find five of these kings in one place hidden inside the earth. Luck had nothing to do with it. Joshua responds with a command to trap them in the cave, but to continue the pursuit of their enemies. I mean, it's kind of a funny response when you think about it. He spends way more time telling them what they should do after that than what they should do about the five kings. What would motivate such a command? Verse 19 tells us, it was because the Lord their God is in the process of giving these people into their hands. He's saying to these people, don't stop. God is really doing this. Don't be distracted by these five shiny things over here that are inside the earth. Pursue the people as God has, as God has given them to you into your hands, according to his promise. And they do. They obey. They trap the kings and pursue the people until they wipe them out. They return to the camp with such an overwhelming victory that all the nations around them cannot say one word against Israel. It's been complete defeat. And the glory of God, in one sense, has shone forth and there's not one word that they can say against Israel. But what of the kings who are in the cave? Look at verse 22. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so. 
And Jesus brought those five kings, I'm sorry, uh, and he did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the, pe- all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone in with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. What is going on here? What's happening in this little ceremony? I mean, is, it the, is this the way that Joshua's going to have these men killed? Is that what he's going to do? No, you'll see actually in the last two verses that Joshua will do that. So what is going on here? Why this little show of superiority almost? We are seeing a sacred ceremony in which Joshua is giving these chiefs, listen to this, he is giving these chiefs a sign to bolster their faith in the divine warrior. They are showing them exactly whose God they are serving. Who, who is their God? Think about this, for instance. You have a great speech that is given to you and much promise is made to you. And that's it. You go away being convinced this is a good thing. I got to remember that speech. But think about this. You're given this great speech, these promises, and then there's an actual demonstration that is real where you put your hands, or in this case, feet on these props that are living and breathing things that God said he would give into your hand, that God said he would give you to conquer. Can you imagine the amount then of security and faith that is being bolstered and welled up in you as you experience this thing in front of you? What God said would happen has, and there's much to be done still in the land. That's what's happening here. Joshua calls the chiefs of Israel forward and tells them, put your feet on the necks of these kings. And then, and then he makes a speech to them. Like they're all standing around like this. They've got their feet on the neck and they're like, get ready for this, guys. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus, and he's pointing to the people down here, for thus the Lord will do to your enemies whom you will fight. In this moment, you have Joshua preaching to his men. That's what he's actually doing here. And he's using a living, breathing example of God's promises coming to fruition. He's showing them this is real. He was the one who promised you back in verse 8 that not a man should stand before you. Is this man standing before you? Are they putting their foot up on a neck somewhere because the guy's standing up? No. The man is literally laying down prostrate on the ground with their feet over top and they are hearing the promises again that no one will be able to stand before you. These five kings of your enemies lying on the ground, not able to stand. His point, do not be afraid. Remember the promises of God. The Lord will do this to all your enemies. This is a ceremony of confidence in faith building. It's meant for them to hear and believe and act on. That they are supposed to now not only believe what has happened before, but they can trust in that same God that he will do it again and make sure that his promises are actually fulfilled. It's a ceremony of confidence. And this is really a gift of grace from Joshua to his men to rehearse the good news, the promises of God, for them to see with their eyes, feel with their feet, and to know that God certainly will do all that he said he will do. Because let's be honest, when you and I struggle with the things that are happening to us in our life and we can't see very well, 
it's very easy to forget the promises of God. Or perhaps even, I'll go one step further, it's hard to believe the promises of God. What we're learning here in Joshua is the reason we gather together is to hear the truths preached and remind us to believe, brothers and sisters. It's a sacred gift to these people. The story comes then to a close, and we see Joshua putting the kings to death and then hanging them for all to see, taking them down on time according to the law of Moses and then being thrown back in this cave. Look at verse 26. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remained to this day. These kings, who had served possibly hundreds or even thousands of different gods, would now be judged by the people of one God. One God, the superior God over all. One kingdom over these five kingdoms. You're even seeing that. And no, they did not receive a king's burial. They are placed back inside a cave that they were hiding in, forever memorialized by their hiding from the enemy. No honor. There's no honor for those who oppose the king of kings. There's destruction, and there's dismay and despair, and it's right. Unfortunately for these five kings, God's promises were true. They should have taken action. They should have repented. They should have turned in faith, but instead, they fought against this God. And the result was they were not able to stand before the divine warrior, and they were destroyed. It should not come as a surprise to us that God's promises are true. I don't have to tell you that. If you're a believer in Christ, you believe that they're true. You already know that as a believer. But today, I want to remind you why we are here proclaiming the promises of God. Because these people needed to hear it. Guess what? You and I need to hear it. That's why we're here together. That's why, well, if you don't, you should. Open God's word. Listen to what he has to say to us These truths of who he is is what changes us and reminds us that he can be trusted. And not only that, that if if he can be trusted, then I should do exactly what he says. I should obey. And I should do exactly the things that he has in mind for us. In other words, God's promises are meant to encourage true obedience. Why would it that we get together and rehearse the gospel of Jesus through our singing, through our times together and the reading and, and the prayers Why would we do that if it were not that we might impart grace to one another and remember that this is truth for one another? That's a blessing. Praise God. This is why we gather together, though. The fact that we hear these promises so that we might, by faith, remember our God and obey. We heard from Nathan this morning. Those that read the law and believe it will act or else you don't actually believe the law. You don't believe the truth about who God is if you don't act. And so as we do this together, I want to remind you that the promises of God are so that you have more Bible knowledge for Jeopardy. I mean, it's not so that we have the next story, what happens next in line. Or this is not, just letting you know, this is not here for your next spiritual TED Talk. That's not what we're doing here today. We are rehearsing the promises of God, the one who fulfilled all of his promises. Not only in Joshua, but man, look where we're at in history. In Jesus Christ. The ultimate fulfiller of all God's promises. The one who made it possible so that we might know the Father and be reconciled to him. 
Do you understand that we stand on that side of the promise? So when I tell you that Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you might have life and you might be submitted to him as Lord and Savior and that that's good, by faith you need to believe that, brothers and sisters. I'm not talking about a re-salvation. I'm talking about over and over again needing to hear the truth of the gospel. And for some of you here today, you do need salvation. You do not know this God. You do not love him. You do not submit to him as your God alone. And for you, let me remind you, the promise is true as well. You will not know peace and you will not know salvation outside of Jesus Christ. You must have him. And I'm not talking about some flimsy thing like, yeah, I believe Jesus, good. I'm talking about submitting to him as the Lord of the universe because that's what he is. And he promises that he will save those that trust him and him alone. I realize that we are in a time of, man, a lot of stuff's going on. It may be this morning, some of you are tired of running around going from this thing to that thing to this thing. You're constantly wondering, like, when do I get a vacation from all this? When can I get a break from the struggles? When can I have all this? May I remind you of the promise of the Lord of the Sabbath? Jesus himself, who is our Sabbath rest. You will not know peace and rest unless you know him. So I tell you, know him, love him, trust him, you will have rest. That's a promise, brothers and sisters. How about your fight against sin? As you, you seek to do what's right and, and, and hate sin, and still it continues boom, over and over again, and you feel discouraged, and you know you hate this fight. Can I give you the promise of Philippians 1.6? That he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ? That's a promise. Don't spurn that as though it doesn't matter. Understand it to be true and trust our Savior and therefore act. Some of us, as you know, are just plain hurting. The amount of suffering here is not only summed up in what's going on with David and Heather. I could point to people around this room and others that came in the first service, so many who are suffering from the struggles that are around us. When will, when, how long, O oh Lord? How long will we hold out? When will you come and work? When will you complete and make these things right? May I remind you of what John says to us? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is a promise. So don't take it lightly. Brothers and sisters, this is a promise for us to believe and then to act on, pursue this Jesus Christ. Know him in love. All of these excellent promises have one thing in common if you didn't notice it. It's the same thing that the promises that he gave to Joshua have. The presence of God. This is the beautiful thing. The most important thing that we could ever have is himself. He promises him, I will not leave you or forsake you where he says, the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is our promise. Our God promises his presence and calls us then to action. So brothers and sisters, let us trust him and act. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word which reminds us that we need you and proves over and over again the superiority of you, Lord God, over all other gods, they're all idols before you. 
Lord, I pray that you would encourage our body, that we would trust you, that we would believe. And then, as James, our brothers, said, that we would act. Lord, there are so many different applications, I couldn't even start to mention all of them. I pray your Holy Spirit would drive this into our hearts so that we might take the promises you give us in Scripture and that we might know peace and joy from you. That doesn't mean everything's going to be easy. We know that there will be suffering and we cry out, how long, O Lord? But one day you will make all things right and we trust you who is over all. Lord, do your, do your work. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons on Joshua and for more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.